Hi, and welcome to the Courtney Turner Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney, and I'm super passionate about moving and thinking. On this show, we are going to dive into all things health, fitness, personal development, lifestyle, and political sociocultural. I've always been fascinated by people, and I love learning from the experiences and stories of others. This has been a treat for me, and I hope this is enjoyable and useful for you. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or any way that I can make this a better experience for you, please don't hesitate to reach out. So today's guest is one of my very dear friends who is an expert on all things history, politics, economics. He is also the author of Queer and Sinister Things, The Hidden History of Iran. I highly recommend you read it. Really, really excellent book. And at the end, I will link to all of his uh, contacts and the way you can purchase his book. Thank you so much for coming here, Tom. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Super excited. So Tom and I were talking about, you know, the current political milieu and, you know, the state of affairs currently. And there's been a lot of tossing around this term fascism. And it's come to our awareness that a lot of people don't have a really good sense, a really good understanding of what fascism actually is, right? So... I thought that I would bring Tom on here today and uh, see if he could help clear some of this up for us. Yes. Well, you know, the, 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 the biggest problem is it's not that they don't have a clear understanding. They have no understanding of what fascism is. Uh, the sad part is that most people, when they try to find a dis- uh, definition for fascism. They look in Webster's dictionary or they look at uh, Wikipedia and things of that nature. Let me, let me show you what um, this is just taken directly from a Wikipedia Google search, uh, what, how they define fascism. Fascism is a form of far-right authoritarian ultranationalism characterized by dictatorial power, forcible suppression of opposition, and strong regimentation of society and of the economy, which came to prominence in early 20th century Europe. That's how it's described. Now, that is probably the worst, although it's the most popular definition of fascism, but it doesn't do a thing to tell you what fascism is. In fact, the entire description can also be used to describe communism, can be used to describe national socialism in Germany, can be used to describe Cuba, can be used to pretty much any socialist government you can imagine. So it doesn't do a thing to tell you what fascism is. Um, so I think that, uh, that what people really need is to understand uh, the meaning of the terms they tend to use as pejorative, which is pretty much all it is. It's lost real meaning. It's become a weasel word. It's, it's just a word that still retains its form, its pronunciation, but the actual substance of the word is lost. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think a lot of people think that, you know, when you're trying to define these words that you're just labeling. And really, it's, it's the opposite. The reason I want to get to the bottom of this and to explain this to people is so that we're not just throwing labels, that right. people really have a solid understanding when they throw these terms around and what the history of these terms are and why, you know, why they lead to the types of problems that they may. That's right? correct. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, one of the problems is, is that uh, when it comes to a, an ideology like fascism, uh, often people describe, for example, the German government uh, in the 1930s, 1940s as fascist. It was not. 
Uh, you know, the Soviet Union called Finland fascist. It was not. Spain was called fascist. It was not. None of those countries were actually fascist. Fascism was a political party that only existed in Italy, not Europe in general, it existed in Italy. So I think that, it, it, you know, to start off, let's define what fascist is. Okay, and then after we define fascism, <laughs> let's address why that misconception exists. Huh? Why do people think that Germany, Nazi Germany yeah. is fascist? Precisely, very important. What a, 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 the term fascist is actually the term that was applied to a socialist political party in Italy that sprang up in the 19, uh, uh, just after the war. It really started back in the 1910s, but gained prominence in 1920 with, uh, with its leader, Benito Mussolini, who was the leader, who became the leader of the party. Uh, Mussolini had been brought to the ideas of fascism. I'll get more into that later, but, or he'd been brought to the ideas of Marxism, but uh, he was a devout Marxist, like pretty much every other socialist. But uh, in terms of the, the term fascist itself, what that was, a fascist, and most, most of your socialist political parties, they were also classicists. So they were steeped in classical understanding, classical literature, classical studies. And so many of these symbols, the terms, the, 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 um, the language they use harken back to ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Uh, in some ways, it was a way of showing how educated they were, how sophisticated they were by choosing these terms. We, we understand that just taken, for example, from British Fabianism, the, the, cho the choice of using the name Fabian, uh, harking back to the, to, the, uh, uh, to the Punic Wars and uh, the Roman general Fabius Maximus. So uh, they, they would always draw terms from that. Now, what, why did they choose a term? Why did they choose the fascists? Well, a fascist is a bundle of reeds. It was strung together to make a club, and sometimes it was, it was uh, uh, fashioned with an axe or a blade. And it was normally carried by the leaders of movements, usually the powerful, to show how powerful they were. But basically it was a bundle of reeds. Now, why did this socialist political party reinvigorate this, this ancient Roman uh, idea? Well, the fascists had also been used in certain constructions. You know, a fascist could be used to make pillars, for example, because they were very sturdy. The symbolism for the Socialist Party was, well, socialism was largely defined by collectivism. Uh, and so individuality is, is, very, is shunned by socialist uh, dogma, socialist ideology. Uh, you, know, they, you know, it's kind of funny that in, uh, in France, uh, for a long time, to refer to someone as an individual was an insult because you, <laughs> so you were calling them, they, they were the outside. That's right, you're not a team player. And so what the fascists represented by having this bundle of reeds, it was, it, the symbolism was actually very powerful. It said that a single reed was very weak and could be broken by a child, but when bound together, it was as strong as steel. And that was true. And that was the symbolism of, of collectivism. And so that's where the name comes from. And because that political party would carry, the fa would carry a fascist when they marched and did their political rallies, as all so socialist movements did, the people started to refer to them as fascists by the name of that, uh, by, uh, by the name of that uh, uh, item they were carrying, and hence the name stuck. <laughs> but they were no different than any other socialist political party at the time. They became different, but in the beginning, they were no different. <laughs> Interesting. So, 
maybe you can talk a little bit about what the differences were and how did the differences arise? Of course. You had, back in the 19th century, Italy, and you have to understand that fascism was created because it, it was very peculiar to the needs and the, um, uh, the culture of Italy. Uh, we have to go back to the 19th century of it because it, Italy had been split. It had been divided. It was a, it wasn't a it wasn't a single country. Not back in the days of Rome, where Rome was an empire. But the people dreamed of having an empire again. They dreamed of being united again. But it, it, Italy had simply devolved into a bunch of uh, uh, independent, uh, sometimes city states often going to war against one another because different parties in Europe controlled those states, uh, the, the Papacy, the Austrians, the French, uh, and so on and so on. Well, they dreamed of being united. And so there were two groups. Uh, there, there was a group that sprang up. It was called the, uh, the Risorgimento. And the Risorgimento was that uh, they wanted to uh, sort of recreate uh, the idea of imperial Rome. And so after the Napoleonic Wars, after France's uh, 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 sort of uh, a subjugation of Italy and the various states of Italy, um, they were free for a bit and then came Austria. So what they wanted to do was unite. And finally, they were able to do that. And after that unity was, or, you know, it might have been a fractured unity somewhat, but after that unity, the Resorgimento pretty much faded into oblivion. There was also a group uh, known as the Renascimento, and they, they were, you know, as, as the name would suggest, um, they, they were going back to classical studies, the Renaissance and that sort of thing, where, you know, socialists were, were obsessed with these sorts of things. But intellectuals generally ran these movements, and uh, that also meant the aristocracy ran these movements. So a lot of this, a lot of this comes out of that uh, sort of thinking. But uh, the Resurgimento had become somewhat of a myth by the by the turn of the century, uh, there was always it was sort of like people talk about uh, you know the the Bilderberg Society or the Freemasons. They had become this myth that was sort of controlling everything. Uh, but in, in fact, the Resurgimento they as an organization no longer exists, although the name was often brought forth in these different movements. Uh, but it had a lot to do with uh, the problems that Italy faced as a, as a culture, as a people. Um, they were a fractured nation. They wanted something stronger. And the various socialist movements, you also had a, had a virulent communist movement there. Communism wasn't just limited to, uh, to Russia. But the, the end of the war uh, brought, brought certain things to light. Italy needed, uh, they needed a, uh, a stronger nation. They needed a stronger government. Uh, there were people, socialist movements, talking about uh, uh, establishing that. Well, the communist movement also did, but the communist movement, uh, as all communist movements were at the time, they were more devoted and uh, they had surrendered to control by Russia. And there were many people, many of the Europeans and the Italians were no exception. They might have been socialists, but they weren't willing to surrender to Russia. And so one thing that identified them, there was a, there was a very uh, powerful movement, uh, the fascists, of course, and uh, they were gaining some. They were gaining some knowledge, some respect, and um, 
their, their uh, program was no different than any other. Mussolini himself, uh, who became the leader of the movement, had been, brought to the, had been brought to the ideas of Marxism. He had sort of been educated by the daughter of a wealthy, uh, 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 wealthy Russian. As I said before, most of these were the children of wealthy, the very educated. They were in university, not, not the very intelligent, just the very educated. They were uh, university educated children, which is where socialist ideas always had their genesis. Um, they, these ideas didn't come from the poor. But Mussolini had been educated into Marxism by uh, Angelika Bolovanov, who was the daughter of a wealthy uh, Russian uh, uh, aristocrat. And uh, she, she had no interest in the, the, the ideas of the so-called Regiorgimenta and uh, that sort of thing. She had no, idea, no, no interest in you know, Italian uh, nationalism, which is what a lot of Italians did. She, she had more interest in uh, Marxism from the perspective of, well, you know, let's join uh, the, the Russian movement, as most Marxists wanted to do. Uh, so they, they either worked openly for, on behalf of the Russian movement, or they, uh, they simply surrendered to it uh, 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 quietly. Uh, so Bolovanov obviously had no interest in that. Uh, Mussolini eventually parted with her, and he he fell in love with a more uh, uh, strain of Italian nationalism, uh, and that's where the that's where the more nationalistic aspects of that movement came from. But all of the Europeans were nationalists. You know, you had you, they were coming out of monarchies and falling more into nation states, so they were all nationalists. Even the Russians were nationalists. So nationalism doesn't Describe is is not a definition of fascism. Nationalism is more the character of a state. It has nothing to do with defining a political ideology. Right. So, where do you think the confusion has come now? That why do people are thinking that you know we'll start with Nazi Germany? Why do they yeah. think that that is a fascist state? Right. And then we'll move into more of kind of the current times and how. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I can tell you. Uh, the, the, uh, now we have to go into the economics of fascism. Fascism, one of the problems that most uh, socialist movements had was establishing a strong and actually uh, efficacious economic platform. They couldn't do it. Um, the British couldn't do it. Uh, British socialism had created this idea back in the 19th century. There again, if you Google it, uh, they'll, they'll say that it's a 20th century uh, invention, but it was invented really back in the latter part of the 19th century. It was called Guild Socialism. Now, Guild Socialism was, you know, it was convoluted, very, very uh, uh, complex, uh, but it, in, in, in short terms, it had to do with industrial, uh, you know, sort of industrial organizations uh, controlling society or controlling their industries. Um, no one really had a, a clear-cut program for it, but the Brit that's the reason why it fell out of popularity with the British. The Fabian movement, uh, although it gained more popularity uh, towards the early part of the 20th century in Great Britain, it fallen out of favor and, you know, become sort of a laughing stock in economics. And so the Fa even the Fabians parted company with it, and the Fabians turned to the likes of uh, uh, John Maynard Keynes for, you know, a more solid um, uh, program for, you know, uh, for uh, socialist economics. And Keynes, you know, we're not going to go into the uh, definition of what Keynes, or, or the, the programs that Keynes uh, advised, but most of those still run the world today. Um, 
the it's beyond the the subject of this discussion but that's that's where guild socialism was so what the fascists did is they revived the image of guild socialism but they gave it a new name they call it cooperativism so the cooperativo as they called it and for a while although they it had a lot you know they did a lot of great pr you know uh, uh mussolini had a newspaper and so that newspaper like a lot of socialists they they were journalists as well um and so that newspaper did a lot to spread the ideas of cooperativism and it's so much that you know it was gaining some uh, popularity in france and austria in germany uh but the germans of course went their own way eventually um and even had some interest in america uh they, those uh, those ideas began to influence uh, later on began to influence the new deal policies of american president fdr for example who eventually uh, just like the the fabs uh, the fascists uh parted company with guild socialism and, and ended up adopting more of the german socialist policies but this was the problem with with guild socialism is that guild socialism was so confusing so convoluted that it, they never created a program so when the fascists really came to power when they established themselves all of this talk about you know about individual sovereignty and freedom free rights and all of those things went out the window but that's the same as all socialist movements every socialist movement when it once it comes to power they simply disperse dispenses with all of the ideas that they that they championed in the street about freedoms and liberties and and uh, you know rights and free speech those things don't exist under totalitarian socialist governments not none of them and so uh, that was the problem is that uh, the italians talked a lot about guild socialism but then abandoned it <laughs> so yeah that that's a big problem for sure so if you can explain a little bit about do those uh rights and freedoms and you know free speech and all of these things that they think they're championing and fighting for do they actually lie in the philosophy and ideology um or is that more of the propaganda that people are led to believe sadly it's more of the propaganda um there is really nothing in the uh in any socialist ideology and socialism has many different sects many different uh uh ideas and of course you know things like fascism fabianism uh german socialism those are all considered heretical sects and i'll i'll explain why but uh those ideas uh, the socialists will always adopt very liberal platforms to advance their agendas but once in power uh liberalism is completely uh, uh obliterated so that you know it's just used to advance the agenda now don't get me wrong there are so certain socialists even among them who believe that they truly are trying to get these things and but usually those are the intellectuals what uh, the people the groups that uh, mussolini referred to as the useful idiots um they they're the they're just the intellectuals who truly believe that they're going to achieve these things um and they're usually disappointed immediately after did mussolini coin that term or lenin coin that term well that was lenin's term actually um oh, okay 
Yeah, that was Lenin's term. Um, the well, uh, some people they say that the word "idiots" is a is a misinterpretation of the Russian word. The Russian word was actually "useful innocence." However, it can also be it, the same word can also be "idiots," and therefore it has become "useful idiots." The actual now, you know, the people who want to be rigid linguists say, "Well, he was saying useful innocence," but uh, it's the same term. Because idiots back and in the early 20th century, you have to understand that the word idiot didn't, it was not a pejorative term the way it is today. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it makes sense. It's still in the same regard today when you say yeah. idiot, we're, we're referring right. to people who genuinely think that they're, they're championing good causes and they Precisely. don't realize that yeah. the, the idiot part of it is because they're naive and they, right. they're being compassionate and you know, they're, uh, they're good meaning, you know, that's right. Well intended. Yeah, exactly. So, so what had, so how do we get to this, this stigma about socialism is that as social, as the fascist movement grew and grew in strength and popularity, they began to, uh, they, they actually created a united Italy. They began to give Italy that sense of pride, that sense of strength that they hadn't had as a as a cult, united people for a long time. Mussolini, uh, who had previously opposed the wars of, uh, you know, against the ver various other states, uh, supported the war against Austria. He supported the he supported the the Italian war against Turkey, um, although he had initially opposed the, the, uh, the dispatch of Italian troops to Libya for that purpose. Uh, so they, the Italians were gaining a sense of their own. They were gaining a sense of national pride. And uh, fortunately, uh, fascism was bringing that to them. So the idea that everyone had always opposed, the communists, of course, were very much opposed to the fascist movement. Because the communists, uh, communists see any socialist movement that doesn't surrender to communism as heretical. So, you know, we shouldn't even ex have expected them to support the fascists. So they, they were absolutely opposed and remain so from the beginning to the end. Well, but the other... why they were opposed? I well, communism, of course, from communism from had, because of the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, the, communist re uh, the communism had basically become, uh, it saw itself, or the Russian Communist Party, saw itself as the leader of an international renaissance. They were going to unite the entire world under the banner of socialism. So it wasn't limited to Russia, at least they didn't see their movement limited to Russia. Therefore, Russia's uh, acts of imperialism um, were not considered imperialism. In, to, the, to the communists, uh, the devout communists, when Russia invaded another country, took over that other country of fomented internal, uh, uh, re, you know, rebellions and uh, 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 revolutions, they weren't meddling in the internal affairs of other countries. They were rescuing uh, fellow socialists held hostage to bourgeois capitalism. That's how they saw it. So they saw all socialists around the world as, as members of a brotherhood currently held hostage. So, however, wars against uh, socialists, wars against uh, communists, those were imperialist wars. Those are bourgeois imperialist wars. Stalin actually wrote a book 
called imperialism that began, you know, it was being taught in universities and still the ideas of imperialism are taught today, although most people don't realize where they come from. But they were, they were concocted by Joseph Stalin, who, who fancied himself an intellectual, although he truly wasn't. He was, more of a, he was more of a thug, to put it bluntly. But he fancied himself an intellectual. He, he was, you know, there's a lot of uh, articles and, and uh, pieces written by Stalin, but they, they were usually just screeds. Uh, but uh, what Stalin did when he came to power in 1925, Stalin all but insisted that every socialist movement uh, pretty much surrender to control by Moscow, where the fascists were the first to refuse that. And in fact, one of the things that set fascism apart, that put it on the map, was their economic platform. As I said, they had, they had pretty much abandoned the ideas of global socialism, but Germany was coming up with some pretty interesting ideas. German, German socialists, um, who were also uh, anti-Russian, but th that's more of a cultural thing. The, 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 the issues between Germany and Russia go back long ways. And there again, I can't go into all the details of that, but there's a lot of bad blood there. So the Germans were never inclined <laughs> to sort of surrender to Moscow, but they were creating some interesting strides in, in economics. And those were actually becoming very popular in America and in Great Britain and the like, because they were making certain things work. Uh, the German socialist uh, uh, model was called Zwanwirtschaft uh, socialism. Um, it's a very long word, but it's Zwanwirtschaft socialism. And the the popular idea among the Germans, um, the you know people think that uh, um, that German socialism was sort of a a, a faux capitalism. Well, sort of a, a, a copy of capitalism. In fact, it wasn't. It was more faux capitalism from an economic perspective. It had all the appearance of a market system, but it really wasn't. And these are the things that were becoming very attractive to the fascists. And so that's why people started to see this, this connection between fascism and, German, and, and, uh, and Ger uh, German socialism. But the German, the thing that defined German socialism was the idea of Gemeinnutz get for Eigenutz, which is to say the commonwealth before private profit. So private profit has to take a back seat to what's best for society. And so what they, what they ended up with in the German uh, socialist movement was not a situation in which you had private businesses, private ownerships and those things. For example, people who ran businesses, although they appear to be their own businesses, they were, the, the official term for them was Betriebsführer. Now, Betriebsführer means a shop manager. You're not the owner. You just simply really manage it on behalf of the government. And so it certainly appeared to be a market system. But the reason they needed that is that they needed to create at least some system of, of tracking prices, costs, quantities, and those things, supply and demand. Because in order to build an economy, you have to have a, a, a way of, of, of calculating these things, tracking these things. And that was the reason for having this market system. At least the communists were a bit more honest because they completely obliterated a market system. <laughs> they didn't really care about it. <laughs> but, that, you know, the socialists were trying to have both sides. They were trying to have a socialist uh, system and at the same time, the appearance of a market system. But that's why it became popular. And so the, the fascists in Italy were the first to reject Russia under the new Stalinist regime. Remember, Stalin came to power in 1925. Uh, Lenin, Lenin certainly believed 
in his ideas, but he was he wasn't as forceful in in uh, bringing them to the fore. Stalin was, and so to Stalin, if you rejected Russia, you were rejecting socialism. So the the fascists became the symbol of bourgeois capitalism masquerading as socialists. And so anyone who opposed so who opposed Soviet Union after that were labeled fascists. And that's why the term fascist. Finland was labeled a fascist when the Soviet Union invaded them. Spain was labeled fascist when the Soviet Union opposed them. Every single country that opposed the Soviet Union became a fascist country. Doesn't mean that they were fascist. It's simply that was the term that was applied to them. And why? Because uh, during Stalin's uh, 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 you know, declaration of a popular front. Popular front simply mean all socialists have to come together and unite against this heretical sect. The popular front, uh, by the way, it was it was originally called against Germany because Stalin and, and Hitler were not uh, enemies at the time. They became enemies later. Uh, so Stalin declared a popular front against Germany, and so Germany became fascist. By this. <laughs> that made Germany fascist because Germany became the enemy. Prior to that, Germany was not considered fascist. But the when Stalin declared the popular front, uh, anyone who was the subject of the popular front was considered fascist. And so that was the purpose of calling these various countries fascist, although fascism only existed. It was a political party that only existed in Italy. It wasn't defined by nationalism because nationalism defined all of the European governments, all of the European states. Nationalism could define pretty much anything. Um, it wasn't defined by religion. It wasn't defined by race. It wasn't defined by any of these things. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there's a problem when we use the word fascist, when we call a country fascist, because we're just following old Stalinist, you know, doctrine. Even the group called anti, uh, Antifa. Antifa, although it's become popular now, Antifa is a communist movement, just as it was in the 1950s, 1940s. Uh, and it was, it was a part of the popular front against fascism. And hence, they were anti-fascist. But they weren't really fighting fascists. It, it was, it, you know, they were, it was a very, um, they were simply tilting at windmills. Uh, you know, uh, um, you know, they, they everywhere they just like Don Quixote. Everywhere they saw, they saw, they saw, they saw a dragon that had to be slain, and so they were tilting at windmills for the rest of their lives, fighting fascists that didn't exist. Fascists <laughs> that didn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So what? What? What is it? Why did they? Why do you think Antifa did come up with this? Uh, the, the term anti-fascist. Well, Antifa did it. Really fight, fighting. Okay, yeah. Antifa did not. Uh, Antifa was a creation of the communist movement in Russia. Mm -hmm. So it was a part of, it was, an, it was a branch of the popular front. So Antifa, although Antifa is new to Americans, Antifa has actually been around for many, many years. <laughs> they're, they're not new. They've been in this country for a few decades, right? They've only, been in, they've only been in America because it was certain, you know, certain wealthy individuals sort of reinvigorated Antifa. Antifa had actually fallen out of popularity for a long time. They had, they've had a rebirth after the fall of the Soviet Union because throughout the, uh, you know, after after Stalin and the and, you know Stalin died, I believe it's 1953, if I'm not mistaken. After Stalin and after um, throughout the power, the rise of the Soviet Union as an imperial nation, as an imperial state, uh, they didn't really need 
uh, groups like Antifa because they had, the Soviet Union had been successful in establishing fifth columns throughout the world, even here in America, uh, who could do their bidding for them. But after the fall of the Soviet Union, groups like Antifa had to have more of a resurgence. Sorry. Sure. Can I yes. clarify for people what fifth columns are? I think most people don't. Oh, well, uh, uh, you know, uh, in brief terms, the fifth, fifth column in, in Stalinism, these were the more, the, this was, uh, although Stalin created this idea called uh, cultural Marxism, he probably didn't know he was creating it, but uh, <laughs> Stalin's idea of capturing, um, and, even, and this goes back even to Karl Marx. Karl Marx, by the way, and I'll, 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 I do have to do a brief aside on Karl Marx later, but Karl Marx's idea for the International Socialist Revolution, the one thing Marx got right is that he, he said, look, revolutions will work in most places, but uh, they will never work in, you know, among the British or the Americans because those two societies are, you know, are not ready for the revolution. And so it would require other means. Now, Stalin understood that, understood that very well. Stalin, Stalin, as I said before, was not a scholar, but he, he, was a, he was a street fighter and he knew what it took to get things done. So he understood that sort of is socialism entering through the front door as it did in most European nations would not work in certain countries. They had to enter through the back door and that means through the culture. And so you had to have the, the Marxist revolution culturally and not sort of in your face in the street. Even in some of the European countries, when the communists came out in force, they lost. That happened in Italy. It happened in Austria. It happened in France. Even those countries had, had started to adopt socialism in droves, but they weren't ready to surrender to the radicalism of the communists. You have to understand how the Bolsheviks were. If Americans think that groups like Antifa are bad today, imagine what they were doing back at a time when you didn't have the sort of you know, international global eyes on them. And they did some, they did some pretty dastardly things back then. And so it, it left a very sour taste in people's mouths for communism. Uh, so although they were, they were certainly socialists, they weren't willing to go that route. And people understood that, uh, so what Stalin understood was that you had to attack certain cultures or certain uh, nations through the culture. That was the idea of establishing fifth columns. Uh, cultures are built on a nation's, uh, uh, the things that establish a culture, their religion, mm -hmm. their education, yeah. journalism, entertainment, you know, the, a family. These yeah. are the things that establish a culture. You define any culture anthropologically by studying those things. And so Stalin understood that if communism was to succeed in certain societies, the, uh, those things have to either be controlled or destroyed by the socialist movement. Family, religion, journalism, entertainment, uh, uh, and academia. Very, very important to all socialist movements. That's, what's the, that's what the fifth columns were called. These were the, these were the movements uh, in, foreign in other countries that achieved the, the goals of, of Russia, but without open rebellion. Right, yeah. subversive kind of- Exactly, government. precisely. Now understand, you know, to the Soviets, as I said before, that was not considered imperialism. Soviet capture of other countries was not imperialist. They were rescuing. It was only imperialist when Western countries opposed it. That was Western imperialism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Right. So maybe back up just a little bit, just to so people have a sense of um, communism, fascism, mm -hmm. the differences culturally and economically. Yeah. Well, economically, the, the only real differences between communism and other forms of socialism, understand that when you say socialist, all communists are socialists, but all socialists are not communists. And that was as true 100 years ago as it is today. There are many socialists today who, who would never, ever accept uh, you know, radical Bolshevik ideas. They, because to them, they consider themselves champions of democracy, champions of freedom. Now, they may not realize that the types of government they bring to they bring to power would be opponents of that, but they certainly do. They feel strongly that they are champions of democracy, freedom, and those things. So I would never say that all socialists are communists. I had once been a socialist, but I was more of a Trotskyite, so <laughs> so I was very much opposed to communism. Uh, so the idea is that um, uh, the the differences between communism and socialism is it, there's no difference at all. It's just names. Now, what defines the communist a communist government is different. Communists tend to do away with uh, uh, all vestiges of a market system. That's what defines them. Now, some people define communism, uh, you know, they have a more agrarian-centered economic system, but that, that isn't true either. Stalin became a fierce industrialist. In fact, he industrialized Russia. This was part of the reason for the rift between Stalin and Mao. Both committed communists, and yet both committed enemies. <laughs> Mao became a Mao became an ally of the West, or at least the the you know the the Chinese of Mao became an ally of the West, uh, thanks to Richard Nixon back in I believe that was seventy one or seventy two, I can't remember the exact. But Nixon brought China into the Western world. But uh, so China and Mao were fierce opponents. Why? Because Mao's conception of uh, communism was still locked into this very antiquated agrarianism, and Stalin was more interested in industrialism. He wanted the Soviet Union to rival and, in fact, supplant uh, the Western world in industrial strength. Right. <laughs> so economically, that's what that's what set the socialists and the communists apart is that the socialists were willing to maintain certain aspects of the market system, if only for their own survival, because many of them, as I said before, were wealthy aristocrats themselves. So they weren't willing to do away <laughs> with with their own economic powers. Uh, and, and in that way, you could say that the communists at least were a bit more honest because they were willing to completely do away with it. Now, they still had a tiered uh, society. I mean, there were wealthy, uh, you know, oligarchs who, who enjoyed all of the riches of society, despite the, prolet pro the proletariat whom you saw all the time. You know, um, I, you know, some of my family were in, uh, were in the diplomatic corps, and it was always funny to watch Soviet diplomats who would wear their drab green uniforms when, when attending uh, 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 state events. And then they would disappear into back rooms and come out in these, you know, uh, four or $5,000 Italian-made suits <laughs> because they certainly didn't want to be filmed publicly wearing those things. So, you know, that, that certainly existed on the communism. I'm not saying 
saying that you know there's you know don't be fooled it didn't exist but at least but the communists uh, uh, they they did a good job of doing away with at least the appearance of a market system, unlike many of the other socialists. So the true difference between the two, they were, they, culturally, politically, they were all the same. Uh, Mussolini adopted the single party system, much like you know Lenin did. Lenin uh, Lenin banned all other parties except the Communist Party. Mussolini banned all other parties except the Fascist Party. Hitler abandoned all of, uh, abolished all other parties except the National Socialist Labor Party, uh, which was which is what Nazi means, by the way. Uh, so basically, uh, you know, one party rule that was typical among all socialist governments. So the only thing that really set them apart was the idea was the the idea of uh, of uh, uh, economic order of society. Were they all imperialist? Yes, every single socialist government. It, 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 obviously, we know about German imperialism. Germany tried to take over the world, but so did Stalin. Yep. Mussolini, the, the Italians wanted to, but they didn't have the ability. Uh, so <laughs> you know, that's the only thing that stopped them. They certainly wanted to. So uh, you know, the, the kinds of things that define what fascism is, what socialism is, um, uh, all of these different movements, uh, the underlying current is Marxism. You know, saying that someone is a socialist is like saying they're Christian. What do you mean? You know, Protestant, Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, you know, there's so many different sects. And so Christian is just an umbrella term that defines them all, much like socialism. It just defines the ideology. But the different movements often have very uh, wild differences in, in uh, interpretations of Marx and in, in their conceptions of the organization of a state. Right, right. So let's get back to the Antifa, anti-fascist. Yes. yes. And so they actually were not fighting fascism and no. they didn't coin the term at all. No, no. No, it was a creation of the of uh, the Soviet Union, and uh, Antifa. Uh, they had a resurgence after the fall of the after the fall of the Soviet Union, and so uh, most people around the world often saw them during the during the uh, uh, the global economic summits. Uh, what is now, I think, it's now the G20. There's so many countries, and <laughs> I remember when it was the uh, maybe dating myself, but I remember when it was the G6. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're up to 20 now. I can't, I, I'm not sure. But uh, most of the time, they would make themselves known at those events uh, because they wanted to disrupt those events. Uh, after all, those were, events were designed to, to you know, uh, sort of encourage international economic development and uh, cooperation. Uh, not that they ever really achieved it, but that, that's always the purpose of it. Uh, and so that's something that, you know, if you're a communist movement, you would be opposed to that. Uh, so uh, that's what Antifa fights. But why do they call it, why do they say that they're still fighting fascism? Oh. Remember, fascism had lost all meaning. So fascism has now become just a pejorative term. What it truly means in, in their minds, anything that they oppose is justly defined as fascism. Doesn't mean it's fascist. Doesn't mean it, it doesn't even mean it's socialist. It just means we oppose it. Or more specifically, it opposes us. <laughs> so if you, yeah, if you oppose Antifa, uh, you are considered fascist. Yeah. Wow. And so maybe you can tell us a little bit about how it came to this country and the evolution of Antifa here. Well, uh, Antifa really, um, 
although they had been in America, but they were very small and, and uh, sort of went under the radar, unnoticed. Um, uh, most of my research has centered on fascism itself, not the organization of Antifa, but uh, Antifa as an organization uh, had a sort of a rebirth, in a, a rebirth, and it had its birth in America. Um, they sprang up periodically, but within the last 20 years, they became really noticeable. Uh, one of the things that Antifa has been very good at is inserting themselves in any popular movement. Uh, well, popular leftist movement. Let me be very specific because they don't insert themselves into popular right-wing <laughs> movements at all. Yeah, well, uh, but uh, so any popular left-wing movement is what Antifa sets, uh, uh, inserts themselves into. And they tend to take over those movements and they become the more the focal point, which is what they've done with, uh, with the, uh, what they call the anti-racism movements in America, which, you know... Um, I know that people have different opinions on that, but, you know, if you want to consider it anti-racism, fine. But uh, Antifa has taken over those movements, and they have become the focal point of them. And they inject into those movements a very virulent, hateful, uh, violent uh, um, uh, ethos. And it, it becomes the, 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 the thing that defines the, the protest, the demonstration itself. And so, and that's not to say that groups like Black Lives Matter, for example, which is to me just another side of the same coin as Antifa. Uh, Black Lives Matter is not. They're partners, aren't they? Yeah, they yeah. are. They, they, they. It's basically the same movement. Black Lives Matter, and just like Antifa, they use the idea of being anti-racist or social justice uh, in an attempt to achieve a different goal. Now. I have no problem with the fact that they're communists. I have no problem with the fact that Antifa's communists. I, what I have a problem with is when they hide behind these innocuous terms and, uh, you know, sort of this, this, these, um, these sort of, uh, you know, spirited uh, um, uh, verbal gymnastics in order to hide what they're really after. I would rather they simply be honest, look, we're communists and this is what we want, you know, um, you know, the Communist Party, it was something that, that was really interesting. If you ever, if you want to read something about the, you know, history of communism in America, Amona Sharon wrote a book a few years ago. I think it was called, um, as a matter of fact, I believe it was called Useful Idiots. I, you know, I'd have to look at the name. But it was Amona Sharon. And uh, she, <laughs> there was a story there that, uh, that I had almost forgotten about, but it was regarding the American, the Communist Party USA. Uh, the communist movement, by the way, had been run out of most of Europe, if you don't know this in the 19th century and so uh, they, they had originally landed in Manchester England but they weren't using the name communist they were using the name League of the Just which is the which is how Marx himself was introduced to communism Marx did not found communism he became he was in he was enrolled into communism by his friend uh, Ingalls but they were called League of the Just and um, they were eventually run out of Manchester as well and they moved to well what do you guess United States of America, and it was 1876, the Communist Party relocated to Philadelphia um, uh, in the U.S. And uh, the Communist Party USA was very interesting. During the, I think it was the 1940s, there was a trial. There was a group of uh, uh, black children who were on trial for raping uh, a white woman. It was called the Jonesboro Boys case. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, there were five of them, and they were found guilty. But uh, the Communist movement had used that case 
just as a PR stunt. They used it to raise money saying that, you know, we're going to fight racism, we're going to fight this bigotry, we're going to fight this injustice. So they raised, uh, you know, who knows what the actual amount, but it could be in the vicinity of about $200,000 they raised. And back in the 1940s, that was, that was a considerable amount of money. Uh, what they did is they used that money and they only filed two uh, briefs. Those are called amicus curiae briefs in a in a in a uh, in an appellate court case. Is a friend of the court brief, and they filed two briefs, and that was it. Nothing else. Um, they they literally did nothing else on behalf of Jonesboro boys, and they were you know years later uh, the president of the CPUSA was questioned on that, and he was very candid. He said, "Look, we don't we we didn't give a damn about the Jonesboro boys. Look, we we were we were trying to." Uh, to uh, achieve, you know, a, a, our goals, and we would simply use anything to do that. And so that's, you know, I would prefer the communists today were that honest. Yeah. Just simply say what you want. And so that's, you know, when I, when I talk about Antifa and Black Lives Matter and groups like that, it's not that they, I don't want them silenced, although I wish they would be. I don't want them, I don't want them disbanded, although I wish they would be. Uh, I simply want them to be honest about, about their goals, about their agenda. And that is what they're not doing. And this is simply, this is simply what socialists have always done. Yeah. They fudged. <laughs> and well, instead, of, instead of being honest, what they do is they, they use, uh, you know, the spirited circumlocution that only mutters the waters of understanding. It, does, it doesn't aid in understanding what they're after. They're trying to muddy the waters of understanding. <laughs> right, absolutely. And that's part of why they're so successful, I think, of course. in recruiting the useful idiots because Precisely. they don't really understand what they're doing. They think they're serving one thing. I mean, nobody did not, nobody wants an unjustly, nobody denies yeah. black lives matter. You know, yes. so they're, they're chanting <laughs> these causes, which hmm? you know, any sane, decent human being is for. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, but they don't realize what the true agenda is because it hasn't been right. made clear. It's not transparent. Yeah. Um, Oh, yes, that's definitely a huge problem. Oh, during the, during the Cold War, there were many so-called global peace movements. Yeah, during the Cold War, they had a lot of these global peace movements, you know, these, these anti-war movements and that sort of thing. They weren't really anti-war. They were simply anti-anything that opposed the Soviet Union. They were all for the wars being fought by the Soviets. For example, there were many anti-peace movements that focused on uh, the, the US and British opposition to the Soviet movements in Central and South America. But whenever you mention, well, why are the Soviets there fomenting these rebellions and, and you know, uh, uh, encouraging these civil wars? Well, well, you know, that's, that isn't what we're talking about. You know, it's, it's the, you know, the British and the Americans are the ones causing the wars. They were causing the wars because they were, they were trying to help the people defend themselves against the communists. And so the anti-war movements often did that. They used the language of being peace or anti-war, but that was never really the purpose. They were simply opposed to the West. There again, I, I have no problem with them being that way. Mm -hmm. I simply think that in order to have a, a real discussion, we have to be honest about our agendas. We, we have to. know what they're discussing. I think yeah. that's a huge problem today. Is people don't know what they're discussing, which is why yes. I wanted to have this conversation. Yes. Um, which brings me to kind of more of the current milieu. And I think we hear a lot of, I know I've heard a lot of people say that Trump is a fascist. Right. Um, you know, that we're heading towards fascism. And, you know, the fascism, the alt-right is rising and we're going to be mm -hmm. a fascist system. Mm -hmm political structure 
you know, mm-hmm. if you're not careful. Right. right. Um, so I, I'd love to hear some of why that's very clearly not the case. And well, I think that everything that we've discussed so yeah. far pretty much uh, casts light on why that is not the case. Sure. Um, uh, you know, point of fact, Trump could only be a fascist if Trump were a socialist. And so since socialism, then fascism is a socialist political movement, uh, you can't be a fascist if you're not a socialist. Now, there again, how do they define fascism? They define fascism as nationalism, patriotism, all of those things. But then again, you could define any nation as fascist on, with that terminology. Uh, no, uh, and fascism was not a far-right movement. I know, I know this whole right-left dichotomy gets confusing because in, in the Soviet Russia, the communist movement was considered the, the ultra-right. Uh, so this right-left dichotomy, that's the reason why I still prefer terms like right, you know, uh, um, uh, liberal or socialist because liberal, uh, not the American vernacular, I know, you know American socialists tend to adopt the word liberal. But uh, when I say liberal, I mean actual liberal, you know, people who believe in the concepts of freedom, individual and otherwise. Um, and so it, 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 to me, that's that at least it, it clears things up a bit. And when we start to say right, left, it gets very, very muddled because it's like, okay, which country are we talking about? You know, European right, left is the same and it's, it's very clearly not. We have very- that's, that's true. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, you know, that gets very confusing. Conservatism is somewhat, yeah. as you just uh, alluded to, with uh, England. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. There, 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 are, there are people on the far right in America whom I could never agree with. And, you know, uh, just as there are people on the extreme left whom I could absolutely never agree with. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So, you know, there is a far right, far right, far right, far left in America. But to say that Trump is an authoritarian uh, and those things, those things to me, more they're more appropriately defined the Democrat Party. Uh, the Democrat Party is very much opposed to freedom of speech. It's only, it's only uh, you know, the, the only free speech they support is the speech that they agree with. And unfortunately, that is not supporting free speech. I, 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 hate, I hate to break it to them, but that really isn't the definition of free He's speech. Liberal uh, tolerance, as Herbert Marx right. coined it. Precisely. 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 So, you know, there's nothing, you know, rather than me trying to defend Trump, and, you know, I think that Trump does a good job at doing that himself, I would, you know, whenever someone asks, you know, me to do that, my question is, how do you, you know, how do you define the term? Um, So rather than me trying to defend rather than me trying to defend it, I would like to know what they mean by Trump being a fascist. I would love for someone to explain that. And unfortunately, no one has. No one has explained to me what makes Trump a fascist. You know? I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Not to defend him not being a fascist. Yeah. <laughs> right. The question wasn't to defend Trump. The question is what makes him, why do they think he's a fascist? But as you yeah. just said, most people because, don't that. Yeah. He, he disagrees with them, therefore, in, in their terminology, he's a fascist because he disagrees with them. But that is, that is not the definition of a fascist. Uh, there's, there's far more to it. So I think people who use these terms, they should probably spend a little time studying political science and political philosophy. Uh, it, it would help. I, I'm more of the school of Gernam Idol, who, who made it clear. He was an was intellectual, you know, and um, not, not a right winger at all. But uh, he said, look, people, we should always, you know, uh, label ourselves in, in the sense of define 
where we are ideologically. That way people can, can properly, you can have some context of the things we, we say, of the programs we advocate and those things. I think that would be, that would be perfect if we did that. <laughs> I love that you say this because what I hear from so many people is, you know, we need to get rid of our bias. We're going to absolve ourselves of our bias and then we can be these, uh, I guess, politically fluid people and that somehow that's morally superior. And I always say that, you know, I think one, that's actually impossible. As human beings, yes. we cannot rid ourselves of our perspective and our, our bias, you know, because that's, it's coming from us and that's, you know, so I think that what it's, it's incumbent upon us to own our bias, yes. to actively choose it, to be aware of where we sit and to be consciously sitting there, you yes. know, to continue to educate ourselves, explore and seek truth. We right. may shift where our perspective is, but right. we're not going to rid ourselves of our bias. And I think the more transparent we are with our bias, Actually, contrary to popular thought, I think the more honest discussion can actually be because then you know where each other is sitting. That doesn't mean you're locked in your bias and you can't, right. you know, have a discussion or that you're not open to learning and actually going on a journey in intellectual right. journey. It means right. that you know where each of you sit and then you're yes. working from there. Of course. Uh, you know, people, you know, uh, years ago, I, I think it was in the 19, I want to say the 1970s, can't remember the year, uh, you know, famous uh, um, uh, sociologist, intellectual, uh, Daniel Bell, wrote the book called uh, The End of Ideology. Great book, I read it, uh, disagreed with a lot of it, but understand, I disagree with a lot of people. I love my parents and I disagree with them thousands of times, so it doesn't mean, <laughs> doesn't mean I hate anyone if I disagree with them. You know, sorry, fa sorry, Antifa, I don't hate you because I disagree with you. But Daniel Bell wrote this book called End of Ideology. I, I, he, say I, I hate a lot of what they're currently doing, though. Oh, absolutely, I certainly do. Uh, in, in, in End of Ideology, he, he promotes this idea that we should, we should you know, uh, uh, should shrug off labels, we should not be ideological. And I think that that, that was really foolish, you know, particularly for such an educated and intelligent individual. Uh, that was really foolish. You know, uh, the fact is, uh, ideology, uh, defining ourselves in terms of our ideological uh, perspective, uh, it, it allows us to be honest, one. It allows us to frame. It, it, it provides not something that encapsulates our mind, but it provides what's called a conceptual framework so that, so that we bring forth ideas and other people can understand the, the nature of those ideas. You know, it, it, it is a window into uh, introducing into political philosophy a, a sense of scientific, scientific methodology in that uh, science doesn't have these rigid, or should not have, I know it does today, but should not have these rigid sort of, you know, biases that you can't question. Um, I, I love the expression by a famous scientist, and, and I'm not going to try his name because I often forget, but he said, look, there are, there are questions that cannot be answered, but there are no answers that cannot be questioned. Sadly, when we look at the world today, people have these patent, uh, you know, sort of rigid answers, and you're not supposed to question them. 
And so I don't do that. Uh, to me, I, I'm perfectly okay that people know that I'm a libertarian, that I have certain views that, that you know, that they may disagree with. But the reason I'm okay with that is that at least they understand the perspective, the worldview that, that, that uh, provides the framework, the conceptual framework for my ideas. And that's why I label socialism when I see it, because it defines the worldview that brings their ideas to the fore. Now, if you're going to apply, if you're going to analyze and, and research, then you have to, one, be cognizant of where you stand. But at the same time, have an open mind. You know, don't, don't, uh, get, don't fall into these easy traps. And I understand that we all do. We're all human. But it's an easy trap to fall into what I call um, uh, confirmation biases. And so we don't want to set out just to confirm our existing biases. We want to set out to challenge them. And I don't mean challenging ourselves in a sophist way. I mean, Socrates hated this group of people whom he labeled the sophists. Why? Because the sophists were, they were keen on asking questions, but they weren't asking questions for the purpose of understanding. They were asking questions for the purpose of befuddling. Because if they can simply question you enough, then you become confused and, and almost inarticulate. And then they, then they pound their chest and say they've won but they haven't really won they've, they've done what i call before muddying the waters of understanding so when i say questioning and i don't mean sophistry i mean questioning in the sense of gaining a better understanding and somehow enlightening and, and helping people to understand things. So I have no problem with ideology. I have no problem with, with uh, political philosophy, with, with socialism, you know, uh, republicanism, Democrats, all of that. That's, that really doesn't matter to me. Uh, I prefer to know those things because I, I need to understand the worldview that is behind the ideas that you advocate. Right. Then we can have a more honest and, and you know, genuine discussion. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think this really brings to the, the forefront the notion of the difference between, which uh, we're really seeing a lot of today, people are not able to have actual discussions. And so people have debates and they're trying That's to right. win. This is the idea right. of sophistry. You're asking right. questions, but only to prove your point or to right. guide somebody in a certain yes. direction or make things confusing. And so they seem yeah. like an idiot. Right. Whereas a true discussion is a journey. You're mm -hmm. speaking, you're looking for answers. Yes. You're, not, you're questioning answers that may be presented, but it is a true intellectual journey. Precisely. Um, and I think that that's the key to real evolution, both as an individual and, you know, as species and as, a, you know, societies, which are what political structures govern. <laughs> so, well said. Well said, my dear. <laughs> well, this has been amazing. I, I think hopefully we've shed some light on, uh, you know, the misconceptions that people often have and, uh, you know, how we've gotten to where we are today. Um, I think uh, one of the things I'd love to ask you is, you, know, you, you said like having a, a certain degree of political uh, philosophy, uh, you know, understanding political science, that's certainly very helpful, but most people really aren't. Most people, right. you know, are not philosophers, they're not political scientists. Um, they're just living their life and they, everybody has, especially I think in 2020, suddenly, suddenly become an expert on everything. <laughs> All you have to do is go this on is any true. social media platform, you will know that this is true. Everybody. This is true, yes, um, that is true. So, <laughs> what is your advice for people who are not experts, you know, regardless of what they may think, um, but who really genuinely want to explore and have an understanding of this so that they, 
not necessarily they can become experts, but so they can, you know, navigate without all of these muddied waters that they are, they're treading currently and not even aware that they're treading necessarily. Right. Well, you know, uh, it requires a little uh, patience and a lot of research. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no easy these, uh, cut, huh? <laughs> right. A, a better, you know, a better understanding of the world uh, is not going to occur overnight. I can just, I can assure you of that. So we're not going to get there instantly. Uh, it's going to take some time. But uh, there are some things that we can do to understand the world as it is. Uh, you know, where the world is going and and how we got where we are. Uh, I, I, I believe in an understanding of history because when we don't understand history and when we, when we befuddle it, when we, when we confuse our historical fact with political dogma, uh, the problem is, is that we keep trying to right wrongs that we, you know, the past is immutable. All we have is the present. And so when you try to, to correct injustices of the past with injustices of the present, all you do is create injustices in the future. Yeah, That's all you're ever going to do. So you're never going to be able to solve the past. So what do we have to do? We have to understand what we're dealing with. We have to understand uh, uh, the nature of the problem. That requires some understanding of what socialism is, what, uh, what the opposite of socialism is. You know, there are some, there are some things that we can do. I mean, uh, Ludwig von Mises wrote a piece called uh, 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 Socialism, but it was augmented with a piece called Plan Chaos. And so I, I wouldn't recommend trying to read socialism. It's a bit too long and uh, very, it's very... Um, uh, it, it might be, you know, it might be a bit much, uh, especially for a novice. So read Planned Chaos. Planned Chaos is roughly about 40 pages, but he, he, he really sort of summarizes uh, the different political movements very well. Uh, also, Harold Weber wrote a piece called The Two Souls of Socialism. It was more of an essay. I think it originally appeared in, the, in a magazine called uh, Partisan Review. Uh, but... Um, he was explaining, again, the various ideas behind the socialist movements and, and what socialism is. Uh, to understand more of the more radical communist versions, you might turn more to uh, Saul Alinsky's uh, Rules for Radicals. Uh, I would also recommend, if you wanted to know more about uh, the opposite of socialism, uh, both economically and culturally, there are actually two really good pieces. Or three, I'm sorry. One is uh, uh, written by Friedrich Hayek, uh, and it was in, in during the uh, brief time after the war. Friedrich Hayek was an Austrian who escaped the uh, movements that are radical movements there. But uh, Hayek wrote a book called The Road to Serfdom. Um, and while he was primarily talking about uh, the dangers uh, posed for British and American societies, the sad part is it's really prophetic because it seems like it was written today. Uh, but interestingly enough, there's another a brilliant piece written by a man who he wrote... Uh, 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 his name is Frederick Bastiat. He was a French, uh, French uh, statesman. Uh, he died in 1850, but he wrote a book uh, that, he wrote many pieces, in fact, that challenged the socialist dogma of France. You know, France was the world's first socialist revolution, 1789, but it splintered into various warring groups, and France went through many different socialist revolutions um, throughout the years, for about the next 80 years. But uh, the, the, the book he wrote, um, it was called The Law, and it was written after the, you know, in the aftermath of the latest French Revolution in the 1840s. 
Uh, and he talked about socialism, communism, all of these different ideas, uh, you know, uh, not that he spoke with them. He, when he talked about socialism, communism, he, socialism he discussed as an ideology, communism as a specific party. But there were many different socialist parties at the time. Now, of course, he didn't, and this is why I say Marx didn't create socialism or communism. Um, Marx was drafted into the movement. Marx was a socialist when he was in, when he was in uh, uh, Prussia at the time, and he was kicked out of the country. Um, that this is how he ended up in Manchester, England. But Frederick Bastiat's book, The Law, was very telling because he wrote about some of the things that we talk about today. It's the, it's the socialist control of academia and these things. This book was written in 1848. But if you, if you simply ignore the names, because he names a lot of his fellow uh, uh, French statesmen, ignore the names, ignore the dates, you would think of it written last week. <laughs> That's, that's how timeless it is. So these are just some of the things you can, you can take a look at. But I understand that for many people, it's going to be very difficult, particularly if you are embedded in a particular ideological movement. It's almost like, you know, questioning your religion. Yeah. For many people, that is very difficult. And Joe Peruzzo, who was a historian, wrote something that always resonated with me. And I, I'll just say it rather than at the risk of... of, of, of uh, uh, misquoting it. I'm going to read this verbatim. It's a very short piece. Uh, Joe Parism said, it requires courage. It requires courage to cast the accumulated myths of a lifetime to the wind. A natural desire for simplicity, certitude, and the approval of others occasionally causes us to defend even our most flawed worldviews as if our very lives depended on them. Dead belief systems are difficult to bury, for in doing so, we enter a world we do not recognize. We watch the carefully crafted towers of our understanding crash down in ruins, and we lose an integral piece of the only reality we have ever known, reinforced and imprinted on our minds by a thousand voices, internal and external. Wow. That is so profound, and I feel like we see that that's just human nature. We see yes. that now. Yeah. It truly is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that is why it's so hard for people to see outside their box and for people yes. to see somebody else's perspective, whether it yes. be ideological or, or otherwise. Yeah, really. yeah. I mean, you know, we, we often, we want the world to look exactly like ours. Right. And so I understand why it's, it's simply more comforting mm -hmm. when, when the world resembles your own. But we have to understand that we live in a world the perspective of that's own. right. We live in we live in a world of many people. You know, back when you know, back when people had this concept of religion that everyone had to have the same religion, the world was rocked by nothing but wars. We did we did nothing but go to war. Europe went through roughly three hundred years. Now imagine this: the continent of Europe suffered through nearly three hundred years in which they experience very few years without war. That is absolutely astounding. It's astounding. <laughs> yeah, 300 so years. Millions and millions of people die. But once, we, once liberalism came to the fore, and liberalism allowed us to understand that, you know, differences are fine. Yep. That everyone didn't have to have the same religion. That religious freedom was probably a good thing. Guess what? The wars tapered off. Well, religious wars tapered off. They were replaced by socialist wars. Right. But the religious wars 
Which I'm not so sure they're that different. <laughs> well, that, that is true. My personal opinion. That is true. Yeah. Well, we know that the Catholic state still, you know, st still wanted to apply guilt socialism, which was a failed fashion, you know, uh, economic idea. But, you know, the, the fact is, once we accept the idea that it's okay to live in a world where people disagree with us, yeah. a, lot of our, a lot of our hate starts to dissipate. Yeah. You know, but the problem is that we now, we're, 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 we're under assault by a, by a socialist movement and what I would consider a Bolshevik movement. They're not just socialists, they're Bolshevik. Uh, they're not interested in democracy. They're not interested in freedom of speech and all of these things. What they want, the only discussion they want, they want you to conform or die. So you ha you're not allowed to have a discussion. You have to agree with them or go away. They're not willing to live in a world where people disagree with them. And that is a recipe for human misery until, you know, un until eternity. We have, to, we have to get to the point where we accept the fact that if my neighbor disagrees with me, fine. As long as my neighbor doesn't intend to harm me. And what is harm? It's not hurt feelings. Harm is, is very simple. Anything that negatively impacts your life, your liberty, or your property is harm, not your feelings. See, that's <laughs> right. <objective>. <laughs> I don't care about your feelings. Yep. Yes. Mm -hmm. exactly. And so as long as someone doesn't, you know, I think it was Benjamin Franklin who once, uh, they asked him if, you know, uh, about his views about religion. He said, I do not care, care which God my neighbor uh, bows down to. Yeah. Only that he not dot my eye or pick my pocket. <laughs> yeah, yes. that's pretty much my philosophy. <laughs> and we have totally uh, lost, you know, I grew up with the uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never harm me. Yeah. And now I feel like it's the opposite. We're seeing right. that it's fine to burn down businesses. It's fine to shoot people, literally, yeah. uh, to burn, set things on fire. But, you know, how dare you use hateful speech? Yeah. Well, you know, they, they, we, we owe that to the Bolsheviks. I mean, the Bolsheviks, they removed the stigma against mass murder. So it wasn't the Germans who, who initiated the world into the concept of mass murder. It was the Bolsheviks. And so they removed the stigma. And once they did, it was okay to do it. So, you know, every socialist dictatorship engaged in mass murder. But, you know, as, uh, as, uh, as they saw it, if they were killing the people who opposed them, well, that wasn't really, you know, that was just a cleansing. It isn't really murder, is it? So, I mean, sadly, you know, we're seeing a resurgence of these ideas that we, that we you know, probably justly thought were put to bed, you know, with the, with the end of, you know, two great world wars. But we're seeing them, you know, uh, uh, come back to the fore. And that's scary. It's really scary. And this brings me to my next question. So you were saying how... It, uh, the, the passage you read was almost as if it was yesterday, you yes. know, um, and, you know, certainly like Orwell's writing 1984 seems like it was yesterday. Yes. Uh, so many of these uh, uh, timely books were very prophetic and yes. could and still could be true of today. So my question for you, and maybe we'll wrap it up, um, but my question for you is, why is it that we're seeing such a resurgence of things that we, you know, as you said, we thought we put to bed with two world wars. Certainly nobody would want to resurrect these ideas. And why haven't we learned from these, you know, past atrocities? Anymore? Well, because we, those ideas, we haven't, we haven't taught ourselves these things. Understand that, um, that 
most of academia, most of our areas of understanding, cultural Marxism has been very successful in capturing the culture and guiding that culture in a particular direction. And so all of the avenues of education and understanding of how we gain our knowledge have been taken over by people who shared those ideas. They were socialists themselves, many of them pro-Soviet. And so we haven't been given society, when I say we, obviously not present company, but society itself hasn't been given a thorough understanding of the past and, and the ideas that created these atrocities. And as long as we continue to bury them, we'll never, we'll never get past them. And so people have resurrected these ideas because they've never been taught the damage that those ideas have done. I mean, we, we talk about Germany all the time. We talk about the atrocities of Germany, and they were horrible and barbaric. Yep, absolutely. But so were those. In fact, those of the Soviet Union were far worse, and they existed over a, a longer period of time. The Soviet Union had 75 years to wreak havoc on the world, and they did. What the Soviet Union did to Africa, what they did to Latin America, what they did to Asia, it's, it, it's inexcusable, and it's even more inexcusable that even today, academics will not talk about it. Yeah. But they could, they could talk for hours on the atrocities of Germany. Yeah. So that is the problem, is that we, we see a resurgence of Bolshevism, Bolshevism because, as far as they're concerned, it, was, it never did anything wrong. Right. And while the atrocities of Germany, you know, are completely inexcusable, unconscionable, yes. nobody denies that. The, yes. denies mm -hmm. that. However, mm -hmm. what people don't realize is so many of the tactics and the mm -hmm. uh, strategy and ideology behind it originated from the Bolshevik socialists. Precisely. Absolutely. And again, you know, the, the, the only thing, the only difference between Hitler and Stalin, uh, that was not a conflict of ideology. It was not a conflict of vision. That was a conflict between two cultures and two men. That's it. That's yeah. all. Yeah. And until we accept that, we're going to continue repeating all of those savage and barbaric uh, uh, historical events. And we're seeing so much of Bolshevism right now uh, on the streets of America and the streets of Europe. And it is sad to watch. It's also scary. So sad. But I have one last question for you. And that is, we talked about the, the really the terrors of Bolshevik socialism and, right. you know, how that's been uh, effectuated through these other different types of movements. What are your thoughts on, I think a lot of us are very, uh, you know, becoming made aware of the uh, pernicious kind of potential in threats that lie with China, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. so what, uh, what, how do you see that in the spectrum of all of this? <laughs> I, I know that's a well, brand new talk. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that, could, that, yeah, that, that, that could be another two-hour discussion, but... <laughs> and, and maybe we will do that. So maybe you can keep us kind of the... Uh, the Cliff Notes version. Yes, yes. We'll do a two-hour discussion on that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I believe that China, China is very dangerous, and it's largely because uh, people don't see China as a threat. Uh, at least they're not willing to see China as a threat. People not seeing. Yes. Please. Yes. And so, you know, at least with the Soviet Union, when the Soviet Union existed, 
we could actually identify the Soviets as a threat. They had nuclear weapons pointed at all of us. Uh, and so we could see the threat from the Soviets. The problem is we don't see a threat from the Chinese. And that's what makes them especially dangerous. Um, they, they can, you know, it, it's something that can simply walk up on you without your noticing it. It's like the old, uh, you know, boiling the frog analogy. You know, you don't know it. You don't notice it until it's too late to get up from under it. So I believe that China is dangerous. They, China has learned a lot about uh, about uh, economics, and so they may be communists, but they've learned a lot about how economies work. This is something that even Stalin was keen on doing. Um, the and so uh, they they understand that. Perhaps world domination is not a matter, you know, the world cannot be dominated with, with uh, tanks and bullets. Perhaps it can be dominated with money. And so all you have to do is control international trade, control the flow of money, and you can dominate the world. And uh, I think that that is really what China is, is more interested in doing. They have completely uh, disabused themselves of the old, you know, Maoist ideologies and, you know, uh, the, the way Mao saw the world. Uh, China has come into its own. And um, I, I think that they see... Um, uh, themselves as leader of a new world order uh, under under the banner of Chinese communism. Right. Yeah. So I will, uh, we, we can definitely open that up for a potential yes. future conversation, but I'll ask you oh. just one quick question on that. Do you yeah. think that they've aligned with the, because I know you said that they, they kind of abandoned the Maoist uh, yes. ideology, but do you think they've aligned with some of the uh, cultural Marxists in order to uh, use the uh, fiscal power uh, to subvert the cultural movement. One hundred percent. I, 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 I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of that. Do I have evidence of it? No, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm absolutely convinced that that is the case. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Awesome. Well, yeah, I would love to if you're open to it. Have a, another discussion sure. on uh, China. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much. This is awesome. Yes. Well, thank so, you for having me. I hope I hope we we clarify things. Yeah, <laughs> I, I certainly I hope so. so. I, I hope so. I mean, I I enjoyed it. So hopefully, Excellent. other people mm -hmm. and we'll open it. Definitely, they'll you can reach out to either one of us. If you have questions, we'll yes. certainly do our best to answer. Tell people where they can find you, where they can purchase yeah. your book. You can find uh, uh, Queer Sinister Things. Uh, uh, you can also see a synopsis of Queer Sinister Things on Facebook. Uh, but Queer Sinister Things, The Hidden History of Iran, examines the modern political history of Iran. So I look at Iran, not Iran's entire uh, history. That's a 2,500-year history, and there's no way I was doing that. It examines Iran's modern, modern political history. So it looks at Iran as a political entity within the context of the Cold War. So if you want to understand the Cold War, what was happening with America, what was happening with Great Britain, what was happening with Europe, what was happening with Russia and the Middle East. It's a good way to start. It's a good, you know, sort of a, um, uh, it's, it, it's an easy analysis for you because it, it's a chronological walk through history from 1905 cult, uh, constitutional revolution until the Islamic Republic uh, of 1979. So uh, uh, it's not just about Iranian history. Uh, you'll learn a lot about the world in, during the Cold War. <laughs> Without a doubt. Thank you so much. Thank you. You enjoy your day.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.